What do you need? What is that, that one thing that if you had it, you, you're certain you'd be content? Years ago, uh, Sarah Groves wrote a song entitled, All I Need, and it explores this question, what, what do I need? The, the song begins with a, a newly married couple acknowledging they, they don't have much, their furniture was saved from the dump, and they can afford a trash can next month. The, the first verse concludes with the declaration, all I need is my love for you and a seat for two. So it's been proclaimed, all, all I need is love. It's, it's sweet. Uh, but then Groves ups the ante in the next verse. Uh, a new baby has come, and now they need curtains and shelves, which, of course, because they're poor, they'll make by themselves. And so the second verse concludes, all I need is a power saw and a new sewing machine. Now, the funny part of this song is the background singers who, who come in at this moment and sing love, 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 and a sewing machine. You see where this is headed, right? As life goes on, it becomes clear that this couple needs love, but a few more things, too. But we can identify with this, right? Uh, just this past week, how many of us have maybe spent a few moments pining for something? Uh, it, it's possible that um, we, we've done just a little bit of internet research and maybe brainstormed for a minute or two about if, if we just made this adjustment to our budget, we could, we could make that work. Um, anyway, the, the song, as the song by Groves culminates, it turns out that what is needed is love, curtains, shelves, little wooden animals made from driftwood, uh, a sectional, a satellite TV, dark wood cabinets, and a painting by that guy who paints with his feet. Right? And then here are, here are the, the final words of the song. That's all I need. What do you need? What do you, what do you really need? Where and how can our discontent hearts find rest and contentment? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this subject, this contentment, and more in the passage that we're studying together this morning in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, beginning there in verse 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 982. This morning, with Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, we, we reach the conclusion of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. From beginning to end, Paul has expressed his thankfulness for the Philippians' partnership in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has written to update the Philippians on his imprisonment. And in the course of this letter, Paul has encouraged the Philippians to rejoice. For even though his travels have stopped by his being in prison, the gospel has not stopped advancing. It's been making its way through the imperial guard. Since the gospel has not stopped advancing where Paul was, he wanted the Philippians to continue to give themselves to advancing the gospel there in Philippi. To that end, Paul called the congregation to pursue unity through humility by, by getting under 
the burdens of their brothers and sisters in Christ and, and serving them, just as Jesus has done for us. Paul uh, gave the Philippians two sterling examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at these men, guys, and, and see what I'm talking about. See how they have served? Well, you serve likewise. Unity in a congregation is also centered on Jesus Christ. And so, Paul warned the Philippians against the Judaizers, those who were tempting the Philippians to place their confidence in their own salva- for their salvation in their own flesh, in their own works. There was an interior threat to unity too. So if the, if the Judaizers are the, are the outside threat coming in, trying to threaten the congregation, there's, there's a threat from within the church too. A division in the congregation has cropped up between two women. And to, to get back on the path of unity, Paul called the congregation to help these women agree in the Lord, to rejoice in Jesus, to be reasonable and to reflect on what truly mattered. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, the, the theme of unity serves as the current that carries Paul's letter to a close. The church has been united in their concern for Paul. And the dear apostle shares his joy and contentment with them. Paul also gives thanks for the partnership and provision that the Philippians have extended to him with one heart and one mind. And finally, Paul sends greetings and he prays for grace. Not just for some portions of the congregation, but for the whole congregation. From these verses, we learn that as a unified congregation, we are to love and care for those we send and support in the work of the gospel. We'll study Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23 under three headings. First, concern and contentment. Second, partnership and provision. Third, greetings and grace. If you're taking notes, those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, concern and contentment. Let's uh, begin by reading Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Follow along as I read. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Here, in verses 10 to 14, Paul rejoices in the Philippians' concern for him. And he expresses his contentment in the Lord's provision through them. The concern that Paul is speaking about is the fact that the Philippians have sent Epaphroditus, who we met earlier in the letter, with a gift so that he, Paul, might be sustained during his gospel work and now during his imprisonment. We'll learn more about this gift uh, in the verses that follow, but what we see here is that Paul does not detach the gift from the giver. Did you notice that? Paul does not detach the gift from the giver, nor does Paul detach the Philippians' gift from their love. From Paul's vantage point, the Philippians' gift, or we might say their charity toward Paul, 
displays their charity, their love, for Paul. In the process of, of gift-giving, this is something we often fail to consider. It is a far more holistic practice than we sometimes realize. The gift that we give says something about the personal relationship between the one who gives and the one who receives. It at least communicates that a relationship exists. Gifts often, if not always, communicate something about the state and the nature of the relationship too. For Paul, the Philippians' generosity is not impersonal, but a personal expression of their love and concern for him. And this concern has led Paul to rejoice, not so much in the Philippians, but in the God who is at work through the Philippians. Did you notice that in verse 10? How does it begin? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. What Paul is seeing manifested in the Philippians' generosity is God's gracious work in and through them. Their love grows and flows out of God's love. We love because He first loved us. As the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Paul's joy in the Lord for the Philippians, care and concern, reminds us of where Paul's letter began. So keeping one finger here, just flip back a couple of pages to the very beginning of the letter, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. You see, Paul, what he's doing here is he's neatly tying up his letter. He's referring back to themes he had already previously addressed in the letter's opening. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, beginning there in verse 3, three verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So if you turn back to chapter 4, you'll see that the Philippians, the gift to Paul was an expression of their concern and their partnership with Paul in the gospel. And when Paul rejoices that the Philippians have revived their concern for him, he's not chiding them. After all, the latter half of verse 10 simply communicates that it was, it was in the Philippians' hearts to extend their care and concern. They, they just simply had no opportunity to do so until that point in time. We, we don't know what it was that prevented the Philippians from sending Epaphroditus and their gift to Paul sooner than they did. But what we do know is that their intention to do so was, was always present. They always had this concern for Paul. Paul, being sensitive to the Philippians' love and concern for him, reassures the church that he has learned to be content in whatever situation the Lord may bring. Through highs and lows, through abundance and absence, he knows how to be content. Do you wish that you could say that? Do you wish that you could say with Paul, whatever situation I may be faced with, I know how to be content. Do you wish you could use the words of, of Paul there, the words that Paul uses, any and every circumstance? Paul has certainly gone through the ringer in his life. He's a man who by the end of his life uh, had been arrested, shipwrecked, lashed, and, and more. In verse 12, Paul says that he has learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. But what is Paul's secret? What is this secret that he mentions here? It's certainly not uh, the stoicism of the, the Greco-Roman world. Paul is not placidly enduring his imprisonment in an emotionally detached state. He's not resigning himself to an unchanging outcome. What's Paul's secret? He tells us, but first, 
First, recognize this. He had to learn it. Did you notice that? You see that in verse 11? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I have learned the secret. For Paul, this doesn't mean uh, going to school, listening to a lecture. It doesn't mean downloading information. For Paul, this means experientially, learning means experientially living out, working out, and undergoing such adverse circumstances as to gain a functioning knowledge of God's goodness in any and every circumstance. See, the classroom has been Paul's experience of walking with Christ through pain and pleasure. See, God does not teach His children contentment in a vacuum, but through the loving winepress of life. Christian, there is a sense in which you simply can't, you can't simply be content. You must learn to be content. One of the interesting things about verse 12 is that when Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, he's actually echoing language from chapter 2 about Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. What characterized Jesus' orientation during the days of his humiliation? Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, He was obedient to the point of death. Jesus was obedient unto and through death. Jesus was brought low so that he might be lifted up and in time lift us up. The Christian who has learned contentment is the Christian who is confident that no matter how low he goes, one day the Lord will lift him up. On the last day, we will be lifted up as Christ has been lifted up. Notice something else there about verse 12 and contentment. It is apparently needed whether in plenty or in want. We don't often think about that or realize that about contentment, do we? It's needed in any and every circumstance, as Paul says in verse 12. It's needed in abundance or need. Did you know that people who abound need to learn to be content? And that may be you. Uh, brothers and sisters, we, we live in a very wealthy region of the world with some of the greatest comforts the world has ever known in the course of history. There is a very real sense in which us just by sitting and gathering in this room right now is actually abounding. And we must watch our hearts for the pleasures of this world may become idols that eat away at our being satisfied by the only one who can really satisfy us, Jesus Christ. You see, it's the nature of an idol to ask for more worship, to ask for more from us. So we have to be careful and watch our hearts. You see, the truth is that every soul, whether in plenty or want, every soul is a longing soul. Maybe you want to abound. And you think that if you have education, money, position, and wealth in society, you will be content. But friends, these are not the things that satisfy. And and don't let the commercials on the television tonight lie to you and tell you otherwise. As Psalm 107 verse 9 teaches us, that it is our God who satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with good things. Christian, here is the secret of Paul's contentment. He knows and trusts 
that at every moment, God has not merely given him what is good, but what is best. God has never, nor will he ever, give you less than what is best. God has dealt with you in the most gentle, gracious, and generous way conceivable. And so Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Here Paul's expressing the truth of Psalm 28 verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to Him. In life's varied circumstances, plenty or want, in life's varied circumstances, Paul trusts in the Lord's sovereignty, in His goodness, and in His love. What he is saying here is akin to what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Children, youth, young adults, what do you need to be content in this life? Young people, have you ever been disappointed once you have received something you really wanted? To, to, to find that it's not really quite as satisfying as you thought it would be. Maybe you've even experienced uh, that with something you received this past Christmas. Was there something you desperately wanted for Christmas and you received at Christmas? But now that you have it, you find that you want more or you want something else or that it's no longer quite as satisfying as you thought it might be. The only place or the person, I should say, who can satisfy our restless souls is Jesus. It was Augustine who famously said, our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Talk with your parents, young people. Let me encourage you to talk with your parents about where they find true satisfaction. I'm guessing that they have their own stories of things that have failed to satisfy. How can we, like Paul, learn the secret of being content? Paul can live through plenty or want through the power of Christ at work in and through him. You see, Paul is persuaded that God's gift of his life's circumstances great or grueling, is like the Philippians' gift to him. Remember, the, the Philippians' gift to Paul was an expression of their relationship with Paul, and most particularly an expression of their love and concern for Paul. In a like manner, Paul's life's circumstances, great or grueling, are an expression of God's fatherly care, his love, and concern for Paul and his growth in Christ's likeness. So what is contentment? Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better definition for contentment than what you find in Jeremiah Burroughs' masterful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I understand was given away this morning in Sunday school. I commend it to your reading. Here's how Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment based upon, really, this very text here in Philippians. He writes, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in 
God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If you struggle with contentment, then pick up a copy of Jeremiah Burroughs' book from the book nook and, and read it, right? If contentment is a rare jewel, then I think so is that book. Being content means being confident that God is concerned and in control and that He cares about your conformity to Christ in your circumstances. Lest you think that this is a, a, a passive state, lest you think that contentment is a passive state, consider again what, what Paul says there in verse 13. He does not say, I can endure all things, or I can undergo all things, or I can bear all things, though there may be some truth to that. Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Contentment means life and living. It, it actually means doing. Paul is telling his Philippian brothers and sisters, I can joyfully go about proclaiming Christ in my imprisonment. I can joyfully go about doing that because Christ strengthens me to bear witness for the glory of His name. Contentment is learned in part through giving ourselves to the duties that we owe to God and man in our present circumstance. To appeal to, to Dr. Burroughs again, he writes, A carnal heart thinks, I must have my wants made up, or else it is impossible that I should be content. But a gracious heart says, What is the duty of the circumstances that God has put me into? You should labor to bring your heart to quiet and contentment by setting your soul to work in the duties of your present condition. You see, we continue to go about the service of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day-to-day -day lives with the confidence and consolation that God is concerned, that He's in control, and that He cares about our conformity to Christ. That is what a Christian wants most, to be like Christ, to please Christ, to glorify Christ. But perhaps you are feeling weak Perhaps you're feeling weak and you, you think to yourself, if this is what contentment means, I don't think I'm that strong. Well, let us continue to learn from Paul and take to heart his words from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where he writes, My grace, this is what God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what Paul says here in Philippians. He doesn't go about his labor in his own strength, but in the strength given to him by Christ. Whatever circumstance you are facing, Christian, you can please Christ in that circumstance. It was Augustine, to refer to him again, who said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Uh, or in more common terms, all that God calls us to do, He gives us the grace to do. As Paul goes about this, his work content in the troublesome circumstances that God has placed him in, remember he's in, he's in prison, he's grateful for the kindness of the Philippians. This is what he is expressing in verse 14. The Philippians, through their gifts, have entered into Paul's experience and have helped to share in the burdens of his sorrows. 
having considered the Philippians' concern and Paul's contentment. Let's turn now and consider the Philippians' partnership and God's provision. This is our second point, partnership and provision. Read Philippians uh, chapter 4, beginning there in verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. In these verses, Paul outlines the Philippians' faithful partnership with him in the work of the gospel through the provision of their gifts. What is more, just as the Philippians have met Paul's need, so Paul fully expects God to meet and supply the Philippians' needs. In verses 15 through 17, Paul focuses in on how the Philippians have uniquely partnered with him in the work of the gospel. Early on, the church in Philippi was the only church that financially supported Paul. That's what Paul means by that phrase there, entered into partnership with me. The Philippian church was a financial sponsor of Paul's missionary endeavors. In verse 16, Paul mentions how the church even supported him in Thessalonica from time to time. Paul did not view this as an insignificant thing. He's clearly grateful for the Philippians' faithfulness. It was important that Paul received help from the Philippians while in Thessalonica because as he reveals in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul did not want to be a burden to that small and fledgling congregation in Thessalonica. In fact, in addition to receiving support from the Philippians, while in Thessalonica, Paul had to work hard by making tents. Uh, Listen to what he says to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. And then in his second letter to the Thessalonians, this is what he says to them in chapter 3, verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. See, Paul did not want to burden the small congregation in Thessalonica. So the gifts of the Philippians must have been a great blessing and relief to Paul. Though those gifts clearly did not eliminate the necessity of Paul having to work night and day in order to eat. The Philippians also partner with Paul not only when he was ministering in Thessalonica, but also when he was ministering in Corinth, which uh, what he says to the church in Corinth about his support from the church in Philippi is, uh, is almost comical. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. He writes, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. That's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says he plundered the Philippians in order to preach the gospel in Corinth. And in one verse later, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, it was the Philippians, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. See, the generous and sacrificial giving of the Philippians furthered the work of the gospel. 
This is the kind of partnership that Paul had with the Philippians in the good news of Jesus Christ. It was a glorious and good partnership for making the name of Jesus Christ known. Now there's something that should be registering in your mind about this partnership with Paul. It's this. It's a faithful partnership. Yes, it's a financial partnership, but it is a faithful partnership. The Philippians began to give at the beginning of Paul's ministry. And they kept on giving throughout Paul's ministry. They kept on giving even when Paul was in prison. This is something that I pray marks our church's partnership with our supported workers and ministries. You, you may not realize it, but, but we actually got in on the ground floor of two missionary couples. We had the privilege of supporting and partnering with Tim and Carrie Hewitt as they began their mission and ministry in East Asia. We had the privilege of partnering with Charlie and Rachel Armstrong as they began their mission and ministry in Europe, seeking to minister people from North Africa and the Middle East. It should be our prayer that Tim and Carrie and Charlie and Rachel will say of us what Paul says of the Philippian congregation in Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. There we read it earlier in the service. You'll recall Paul thanked God for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Brothers and sisters, we should give generously and sacrificially to the work of the gospel. And like the Philippians, we should give faithfully too. We ought to give and keep giving until the work is done. That may be until the end of Tim and Carrie and Charlie and Rachel's lives. Or until the Lord Jesus comes. There is something else that we need to learn about partnership in the gospel. The benefit goes and flows both ways. Did you, did you notice that? You can see it in the words there of giving and receiving. Uh, yes, the Philippians were giving to, and Paul was receiving. But it's also true that Paul was giving. And the Philippians were receiving. How can that be? Well, wasn't it the very nature of the beginning of their relationship that Paul gave them the good news of the gospel? And they, by God's grace, received it. This financial partnership that they have is simply an outworking of the beginning of their relationship. What is more, Paul was giving them the privilege of being on the front end of the gospel's advance. And they were receiving the joy of knowing that they had helped Proclaim the good news in Thessalonica and Corinth and now throughout the whole imperial guard. Philippians chapter 1 verse 13. Brothers and sisters, why, why do you think missionaries tell stories when they come back home? It's so that we can receive the joy of knowing that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is advancing. That His name is being made great among the nations. And that we share in that privilege and work. Here the Philippians are being told that, that their giving made a difference in the advance of the gospel. And they should re receive joy from that knowledge. And a twist comes there in verse 17. While on the one hand, Paul makes plain that he is not seeking another gift from the Philippians. He's, he's well supplied at the moment. He is, on the other hand, seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. What, what does Paul mean by that? Well, Paul is using financial terminology here to describe what he and the Philippians are accomplishing in their partnership. As, they, as the Philippians support the work of the gospel, the Philippians are storing up treasures in a heavenly account that is piling up and increasing in heavenly interest 
Here's how one commentator put it. The Philippians can expect that their investments in Paul's life and ministry will yield daily profits until the final day of reckoning, the total amount of fruit credited to their account. One day in glory, the Philippians are going to be richly rewarded for their generous, sacrificial, and faithful giving. Paul is going about the work of the gospel, seeking the fruit of converts, to make sure that the Philippians are richly rewarded for their heavenly-minded investment. Paul is not just in this partnership for receiving. He is seeking to give to the Philippians too. After rejoicing in the partnership he enjoys the Philippians, there in verses 18 and 19, Paul, he reassures the congregation that he has been well provided for through their gifts. And he also praises God for them in verse 20. Epaphroditus, he has completed his mission of delivering the Philippians' gift to Paul. As we know from earlier in the letter, Paul was sending this dear brother back to them. Epaphroditus had risked his life to complete this mission, and Paul was immensely grateful for it. Paul characterizes the Philippians' gift in the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He calls the Philippians' gifts in, verses, uh, in verse 18 a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul is not only using the language of Exodus chapter 29, verse 18, where sacrifices were offered at the installation of the priests of Israel, but he's also using the language of Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 40 to 41, a text which our, our brother Andrew Nichols will help us to think about uh, this evening during our evening service. What this means for our understanding of Philippians, what Paul is saying here, is that Paul views the Philippians' gift as the undertaking of priestly service to God. Paul views the Philippians' gift as the undertaking of priestly service to God. The Philippians have become the people that God wanted the people of Israel to be. The Philippians have become, in the language of Exodus 19.6 and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, a holy priesthood. In their gifts to Paul, the Philippians were not really giving to Paul. They were really giving to God what was due to him. This, Paul says, pleases God. When we give to the work of the gospel, we're, we're not really giving to this church per se, so much as we're giving to, to God and as he's dispersing it to this church and his church across the world. And we're undertaking the, the priestly service of, of offering sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord. What greater commendation could Paul give to the Philippians for their generous provision for his need? Brothers and sisters, this is our calling too. We ought to give as the Philippians gave, generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially for the work of the gospel. And as we give generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially, we might be tempted to worry about whether or not our, our needs will go unmet. What Paul seems to be indicating here is that the Philippians gave so generously to Paul that it jeopardized their well-being to some degree. That's what it means to give sacrificially. What does Paul say there in verse 19? He says, he, he reassures the Philippians that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will, of course, supply and meet our real needs. Right? Not just our perceived needs, not just the shelves and the curtains and the power saw and sewing machine, but our, our real needs, both material and spiritual. Giving sacrificially brings God glory because it leads us to depend upon Him. That's, what, that's why Paul turns to doxology in verse 20. As we partner and provide 
for the work of the gospel. As we give, we receive. We receive the joy of knowing that Christ's name is proclaimed among the nations. And we receive the promise of eternal rewards. This turns the world's notions of giving on its head. Right? In the mind of the world, we receive so that we can give. But in the scriptures, in Paul's mind, we give so that we may receive. And in all of this, God receives glory too. He, he receives glory. He is glorified by our giving and our receiving. Indeed, He will be glorified forever and ever because through the preaching of the gospel, more worshipers are called to give glory to God. And they will give glory to God from now unto and through eternity. There are only two more things that need to be given in this letter. Greetings and grace. So let's turn then and consider our final point. Greetings and grace. Uh, take a look there at Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In verses 21 to 23, we have a, a very typical closing of Paul's letter. If you were to examine the way Paul closes his other letters, you would find uh, three things occurring again and again in his closings. First, Paul sends his personal greetings. Second, Paul sends the greetings onto the congregation from those who are within his company. And third, Paul closes with prayer. All three are present here in this greeting. But let's not pass over Paul's words too quickly here. Note how warmly personal Paul is. In verse 21, he wants to extend his greetings to every saint in Christ Jesus. Clearly, Paul wished he could hug and, and greet with a holy kiss every member of the Philippian church. Sadly, distance would prevent him from being able to do so. Notice, too, that every believer, every believer is a saint. Every believer is a saint, not in the sense that the Roman Catholic Church exalts some people as having kind of reached a high degree of holiness for their works. Rather, every believer is a saint because they have been sanctified and set apart for salvation in Christ Jesus. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus is a saint. And to be in Christ means you have hidden yourself in Jesus Christ for your salvation. It means that you believe that He lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins and that your only hope of salvation is Him. This is what the Philippians believed. And it is what they partnered with Paul to proclaim. Paul is not the only one who wishes to extend greetings to the church in Philippi. So did the brothers who were with Paul. In fact, all the saints who were with Paul wished to extend their greetings. But then Paul, he mentions out this... this uh, he singles out a special mention for those of Caesar's household. Now, we don't know quite exactly who these believers are, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if they were those who were a part of the imperial guard. Uh, don't forget that according to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that one of the surprising mercies of God through Paul's imprisonment, that he had the privilege of proclaiming the gospel throughout the whole imperial guard. Perhaps Paul is here signaling that some working for Caesar in the imperial guard, had given their hearts and faith to the Lord Jesus. 
It, it may also be the case that those in Caesar's household were simply those employed by the Roman government. Whatever the case may be, Paul sends the greetings of these brothers and sisters along to the church. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize about these brothers and sisters mentioned in verses 21 and 22 is that they were not physical blood brothers of Paul. Uh, Rather, these brothers were spiritual brothers with Paul. That, That made them spiritual brothers and sisters to the Philippians too. And this is something that we need to keep in mind with respect to believers in the New Testament and the believers of our own local church. For this will should radically change the way in which we interact with one another. In in John chapter 1 verse 12 we learned that all who received Jesus, that is all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is good news, isn't it? The holy God makes us his children. Let's be honest though about what kind of people we are. We are liars and thieves. We're idol worshipers and mental adulterers. We commit murder in our hearts and we're discontent with what God has given us. And yet, and yet, God has pursued us, people like us, sinners like us. How how did he do that? How could he do that when he is so holy and we are so filled with sin? How could God make us his children and give us a spiritual family when we've broken his law? Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 tells us, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is how we come to be in Christ Jesus. Aren't you amazed by God's careful and providential planning? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God prepared history for that very moment He would send His Son. He was in control and He cared about His people. God's Son, Jesus, He was born of a woman, which means that God's Son was truly man, just as He was truly God. Jesus took on flesh and bore our likeness. We see that portrayed throughout the New Testament. He was in every way like us, yet without sin, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says. And not only did the divine and eternal Son of God take flesh to Himself, but He was also born under the law. Having been born under the law, Jesus was able to keep and fulfill it for us and for our salvation. And Jesus did this in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. Adoption is God's work through His Son and Spirit. In adoption, God brings us into His heavenly family. And so, through adoption, God becomes our Father. Through the redeeming work of Christ and the uniting power of the Holy Spirit, we are made children of God. Our receiving and resting upon Jesus alone for salvation is evidence that we are God's children. And friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not one of God's children then I want to invite you to come into the family of God. Come, turn from your sin, and place your faith in Jesus. Believe that He lived for you, that He died the death that your sins deserve, and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be received into God's family. 
Don't let fear keep you from coming to Jesus today. Join this wonderful family, both here on earth and in heaven. Join in the partnership of the gospel by the grace of God. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. Paul's prayer for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. See there, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Mirrors the close of other letters. It mirrors the close specifically of Philippians and Galatians. God has been gracious by saving the Philippians. But, but here Paul prays for yet more grace. More of the grace of the Lord Jesus to be precise. Ordinarily in the scriptures we think of grace as coming from God. We're right to do so. But here Paul mentions the grace of who? The grace of Jesus. This teaches us something about Jesus, doesn't it? It tells us that He is very God. The one whom we rest and rejoice in for our salvation is our God. The one we imitate in the course of our sanctification, in our dying to sin and living to righteousness, is our God. This is what the church in Philippi needs. Grace. And that is what we need. More of God's grace. Grace is what they needed in order to maintain unity. Grace is what they needed to imitate Jesus Christ and to humble themselves, dying to their preferences and place and priority, and living to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace is what they needed to stand firm in opposition to the gospel. Grace is what they needed in order to bring about reconciliation between divisions in their congregation. Grace is what they needed in order to continue in contentment and concern for Paul. Grace is what they needed to continue in their partnership with Paul and trust in God's generous provision to them. And grace is what we need too. So let's pray and ask God for more grace now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.